0: This morning, if you will find your way to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, we have a deceptively difficult text this morning, and it's something that uh, is pretty central to the argument of John, and so um, we're going to get right into that. We're going to find ourselves in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. The experience of every Christian throughout history and for the rest of the future will be that there was one point in our lives that we did not know Christ. We didn't know who he was. We didn't know what he was going to do. We didn't know the ramifications of this person, this man that lived for us 2,000 years ago. John intentionally designs his book to express this reality. He intentionally designs the reality that nobody, including his cousin, expected Jesus of Nazareth to do the things that he did. Even when, as we will learn this morning, even when Jesus came and presented himself to be baptized, John says, what little I did know of him was nowhere near sufficient enough for the amount of things that he will do. And so John the Baptist will remind us over and over again, I did not know him, I did not know him, but now I do, and I testify about who he is. And like all places in the Gospel of John, it speaks straight to the reader and insists that while you do not know Jesus of Nazareth, while you have not seen him with your eyes or beheld him or felt him with your hands, here you may hear the witness of those who did. That is where we are this morning. I would ask you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read these six verses. John 1 29 through 34. The next day, He saw Jesus coming toward him, this is speaking of John the Baptist, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father, what a glorious text. We thank you for preserving it through all these years. We thank you for inspiring John, back many, many centuries ago, to write these words down, preserving them through history, that we may alight our eyes on them this morning. We thank you, Father, for this. We pray that we do not merely understand them, but that we delight in them. Father, that your Spirit, who dwells in the midst of your people, illumine our eyes this day to see this from your perspective. We are grateful for it, Father. We are humbled by it. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. When I say this is a deceptively complex passage, I mean it. There's so much going on here with regards to first century expectations of the Messiah. What exactly would he be doing? With regards to the idea of something that we see after the cross, we see a statement like, Behold the Lamb of God. And what's the connection we make immediately? Passover, right? Immediate. It's it's like a reflex. But here's the reality. Nobody expected the Messiah to come and be the Passover Lamb in that way. Nobody expected that. Not John the Baptist, even. And so we have to do some Unwork in order to get back to understand what in the world is John the Baptist saying when he's expressing this one who's walking up, who will not just baptize with water, but will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is the one who is the Lamb of God, the very Son of God Himself, and He will take away the sin of the world. Now, after the cross, it is painfully obvious the greater fulfillment and the reality that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world does so through his own sacrifice, his own blood, and by forgiveness of sins and imputation of his own righteousness to his people. That is not primarily what John the Baptist was referring to. Here's the thing. None of the disciples, none of the people expected that the nature of Messiah that was going to come into the world was going to be offering his life as a ransom for many. They were expecting a victorious king. They were expecting, as we read even the Jewish literature from outside of the Old Testament, they were expecting the Lamb of God to come in judgment, to remove sin out of the world. If you don't believe me, let's go to Matthew 3 for just a moment and hear John the Baptist talking about this. uh, Matthew chapter 3, we will see what takes place in John's mind while he's at the baptism. Because here's the thing. We sit 1,900 years after the writing of the Gospel of John, and so what we see in there is not the same thing that the audience that John is writing to would have seen. They would have known that there was an expectation of this. Look at John the Baptist's own words in response to these things right before the baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3. Let's start in verse 7. Why not? People were confessing their sins coming down to John the Baptist, baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Watch this. But when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, listen to this terminology, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, That does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now here is why we're here. Verse 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, sound familiar, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, sound familiar, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, tell me that that's the primary picture you have of John the Baptist when he's at the baptism of Jesus, because it's not. Typically, we we refer to John the Baptist's interaction with Christ as saying, I have need of baptized by you, and you come to me to be baptized, and we focus on that side of the story. But if you want to get in John the Baptist's mind, and in this expectation of what he means when he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, if you make that only about salvation... We've got a couple of problems. Jesus did not save the entire world. There are people who still will die in the wrath of God. In fact, the vast majority of people will die in the wrath of God. It's not a partial statement. The reality is Christ, as the Lamb of God, did remove the sin of the whole world, some by forgiveness and salvation and the offering of his own blood as the Lamb of God. Others, by judgment and the wrath of God, exerted on them. But sin, the sin of the entire world, will be done away with. And this is a double-pronged thing that we always have to keep in mind. When we're preaching the gospel, it's not just about forgiveness from sins. It is not just about the gospel, it is also about the law of God. It is not just about the grace and forgiveness of God, it is also about the wrath of God himself. And this is what John the Baptist, you can turn back to John 1. This is what John the Baptist has in his mind. When he's looking at Jesus of Nazareth walking up, what does he say? This is the Lamb of God who removes the sin of the world, who takes it away. Did he have in his mind a full understanding that this would involve his own sacrifice and blood and forgiveness? No, that wasn't even a theory going on. This is why you can see the disciples all through the ministry of Jesus, even after Jesus tells them that he must go up to Jerusalem, be betrayed, crucified, dead, buried, and rise again on the third day. They just cannot conceive of this. You are the Son of God. How could you, the author of life, die? John the Baptist looks at him, and like in many places, John was not thoroughly well-versed in how the Messiah was going to work out. Why? As he says himself, he says twice in these six verses, I didn't even know him. Not in that way. He knew him as his cousin. He knew that there was something special about it. But whatever knowledge came to John the Baptist, as we recognize when he's in his mother's stomach, oh, stomach, that's not right. Um, <laughs> even when he's in there, the Holy Spirit gives supernatural knowledge to him that he did not naturally possess. The same goes for these things. And this is one of the most marvelous turns in here because John, not John the Baptist, who is writing this gospel, includes this knowing that by the time he is writing this, everyone would have made the double connection. And they would have seen that Jesus of Nazareth, who John the Baptist was, in, was intending to see as an eschatological, this, the world's coming to its end, And this is the man who's going to bring it. This is the Lamb of God who's going to put an end to sin in the world. Marvelous, true, but nobody expected the church age. Nobody. Look at the disciples even after the resurrection. What were they looking? Lord, at this time will you set up your kingdom? Even after they've seen him raised from the dead, even after they've seen him on the cross, they were trying to understand because what they were expecting was the end of the world. John the Baptist as well. And so, this is one of those marvelous twists where, in retroflex, everything becomes much more obvious. We have a similar instance with Caiaphas, don't we? The high priest at the time, where he is expressing that it is more necessary, it is more good that only one man die rather than the entire nation be put to death. Now, he was saying this as a, as a political decision to put Jesus of Nazareth to death. But in reality, it was a prophetic word that says it is indeed better for him to die in the place of his people. And only in retroflex do we understand that. And that's one of those marvelous things about it. The same thing goes here. It is right for you to hear, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and to think of the cross. It is also right for you to hear, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and have your mind go straight to Revelation 5 and 6 where you see the Lamb of God exerting the wrath of God onto the world. It is right for us to have both of those things in our minds. It is right for us when we are learning of Christ to hear both of his kindness and his severity. Because this is one and the same God that we learn of in Genesis and Exodus and all through the history of Israel into the time of the prophets. And when we just read Isaiah 20. How many of you want to be the prophet of the Lord in Isaiah 20 and walk around naked for three years as a poor tent and as a judgment to the people that trust in foreign powers? I don't see anyone applying for that job. (laughs) There is a kindness to our God and there is a severity to our God. There is grace. In salvation, there is judgment as well. And in removing the sins of the world, my friends, it is salvation and it is wrath as well. To put aside either of those and to pay attention to only either the nice side, as we think, or the severe side, is to miss the whole picture. The same Lord Christ who is raising a young girl from the dead is the same Lord Christ who is overturning the money changer's tables in the temple with great wrath and condemning a fig tree and also stopping and healing a blind man. The reality is most Christians tend to think of Jesus as a simplistic, dough eyed simpleton. And unfortunately, this has led us to expect that anytime anyone's referring to him, he's just trying to save the world rather than what we really see in Scripture, which is while he came the first time to save his people from their sins, hence his name. The next time he comes, it is not to do that. It is to bring a sword, and it is to bring judgment on this world. Both must be preached. And here John the Baptist is doing the same, and here the Gospel of John is written with both intended and so as we see in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he looks out to him and says to the entire crowd, behold, now remember Jesus was in the crowd the day before. And he says, there's one standing among you that you don't know. And here John the Baptist on the next day says, let me tell you how you get from the one you do not know to the one you ought to know. And he gives them his story. And this is one of the greatest aspects of the testimony of one who has come to salvation. He says to them, verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, again, let's get in John the Baptist's mind. John the Baptist is older than his cousin. Anyone remember this? The story of Zacharias and the temple and Elizabeth becoming pregnant. Uh, John the Baptist was probably somewhere between four and six months older than Jesus. So what is he referring to? Does he have a full understanding of the pre-incarnate Christ, the son of God before the foundations of the world? I don't know. There's no historical expectation of this. This was something that Jesus himself thought revelation of. John the Baptist does not tell us everything that he learned from God. He tells us selective pieces. I don't know. But what we do know is by the time we get to verse 34, he identifies him as the Son of God. Which we know in first century context means he saw him as God himself. Which means, imagine the things that John the Baptist has to learn about his cousin. Almost as hard as James has to learn about his older brother. This is Jesus' younger brother, James. Imagine how difficult this would be to, I mean, most of us have cousins, right? To learn about your cousin, your younger cousin, that he is actually the creator of the world. God himself incarnate. How difficult would that be to swallow? By the way, he hasn't done any miracles yet. His entire ministry has not begun yet. And what you are understanding is that, and this is why you have someone like John the Baptist, needed revelation from God directly. This is what John the Baptist was needing to expect. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, he's more important because he existed before me. In the natural sense, it is the same as somebody giving honor to their parents. There is just a natural reality of somebody who is older. And so here he says, I place him before me. And you look at him and you go, John, he's younger than you. That doesn't really fit. And so there is an understanding here that there was an existence of him. In fact, and it's very hard that John and John the Baptist are both involved, one in writing and one in speaking. John, who's writing this, Uses the same pre existent language that he uses in his prologue in John 1 1. He was God. He was existing as God. He uses it in the quote of John the Baptist here He was existing before me. It's a remarkable little turn, and it's one of these things that exists in the passage that doesn't really translate well, but the reality is he's saying he ranks before me because he was existing before I was, even though he's younger than me. How much John the Baptist understood about this, I do not know. I don't think he fully knew. In fact, that's exactly where he goes to in verse 31. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water. In other words, my entire life, my entire ministry, all of this fame, everyone from the Sanhedrin down, knows of John the Baptist's ministry. Everything that I have been doing is only so what? What's at the end of verse 31? The entire purpose I came baptizing with water is that he might be revealed to Israel. In other words... John says, the message I'm giving you today, identifying the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is the very reason I was born. Nothing else matters. But to give this testimony to the identity of the one who is approaching us from the desert, who's coming back from his temptations, who's emaciated and coming down, and let me recount to you how I know that this is the one that God has sent into the world to remove sin out of the world. Let me tell you about this story, he says. John bore witness and said, I saw the Spirit. This was about 60 days beforehand. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, here's the expectation, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says, I have seen and I have borne witness that this, this is the Son of God. Now that is no small thing. That is the first time this Gospel identifies Jesus as the Son of God in that manner. The prologue doesn't really count because the prologue is... Setting the stage. In the narrative here, we're learning who was the first person to actually recognize who he was. Let me express this. That means Mary didn't fully understand who Jesus was. That means Joseph didn't fully understand who Jesus was. Nobody, not Zacharias, not Elizabeth, not even John the Baptist on the day that Jesus was baptized, understood the significance of Jesus of Nazareth. That's got to sit in our mind While we hear these words, because John, who is writing this, comes back and reminds us, look, the whole point that I'm writing this book is so that you reader may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. For a claim of that magnitude, you need witnesses. I cannot just walk up. Well, I can. That's kind of the problem. I could just walk up to you and say, by the way, and many shysters and false teachers throughout history have said this, here is the Christ. Here is the one to hope in. Here is the one who will remove sin of the world. They'll just do so by rules, or they'll do so by severity, punishment, cult, whatever. I will come up and I can declare to you, okay, let's, uh, let's pick one out. Good morning, Alice. Let me make the claim to you. Alice, I've found the Messiah. I've found the one you should put all your hope in. And it's this guy over here, and his name is Phil. What are you going to ask me? What's the first question that's going to come to your mind? Anyone? How do you know it's him? How do you know it's him? And this is, this is the reality that needs to come to them because while we know the end of the story and we know the rest of the story and the next years that come after and the crucifixion and everything, they knew none of that. To them, God had been ignoring them for over 400 years by not sending a single prophet. Very similar to the Egyptian captivity, by the way. Make those connections. They had not heard a single word from God and they were writing about that. They were frustrating that Malachi was the last time that God spoke to us. What did we do? Where did we go wrong? Why is God leaving us? When will someone like Moses arise? And so there was all sorts of people that had come up in, throughout history and said, here's the person to trust in, there's the person to trust in. But the problem is it never gained the divine witness. It never dealt with the reality that in order for someone to say, this is the person that removes sin of the world, you actually need massive witnesses. And not just human witnesses. You need God to tell you that directly. You say, well, how are we going to trust that John the Baptist heard from the Lord? Because there was a whole crowd present. What happened at Jesus' baptism? Keep in mind, those who are reading the Gospel of John already have access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke at this point in history. They know the story. So what should come to your mind eventually? As soon as you hear the reality that there is witness at Jesus' baptism, what is it? Who witnessed at Jesus' baptism as to his identity? Say it. Say again. The dove and the father. Both. What does the Father call out? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Where do you think John the Baptist learned that from? John the Baptist was not walking around doing some calculations in the desert on a tablet and going, I got an idea of all the people in the world that it should be that would be the Son of God who takes away all the sin of the world. Makes sense to me. It's my cousin, my younger cousin. Nobody makes that connection. And what John the Baptist is doing here is expressing the same reality. I didn't even know that. None of us did. All I knew is that my cousin, okay, let me be just a little bit flippant here because the reality is it must have crossed his mind. My goody-tooty cousin, who never does anything wrong, and no one ever thinks he does anything wrong, and his mother just lauds about how awesome he is and everything that's going on here, my cousin, my younger cousin, who's just goody-two-shoes here, I'm not going to expect that he's saving the world. Would he have known that there was something unique? Yes. Would he have known that there was something strange about him? Yes. Would he have known that He was going to actually save the entire world and he was the one that was come to die for his people and to exact judgment on the nations? No. And it's why he says over and over again in this passage, I didn't even know him. Not in that way. I did not know him. I did not know him. He says it twice. One in verse 31, one in verse 33. I myself did not know him, but... He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Now we learned something new about John the Baptist there that we didn't hear anywhere else. He wasn't just doing this as part of the Jewish rites of purification, he was doing it because God himself told him to go do it. Which is why when people look into history and try to understand why John the Baptist is baptizing with water, find no historical reference to anyone else ever doing that. Nobody else did. The whole point he's doing it is so that he would be there, not just on the day that Jesus of Nazareth was baptized, but 60 days later here to tell them this. And as he says, the only reason, the reason that I came baptizing with water is so that I could reveal him who I did not know to all of you. It is a remarkable switch. And he sits here at the crux of all history and the reality is, the rest of redemptive history depends on properly identifying the one on whom it all turns. If we get this wrong, everything's wrong. If we get the identity of Jesus of Nazareth wrong, if he is not the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who will remove sin from this world, then nothing that we are doing is right. Nothing. Nothing. Because the writings of the New Testament depended on Jesus of Nazareth sending his apostles. Which means the fulfillment of Scripture is dependent on his identity. The sending of the apostles is dependent on his identity. The coming of the Holy Spirit is dependent on his promise. You see the problem is if we don't identify the Savior of the world rightly, it's a house of cards after that. Everything depends on Christ. Everything depends on the proper identity. This is why false teachers, false prophets, and false Christs are so damning. To follow a mere human is to follow them to the grave hopeless. And this is why John, who is writing this, is expressing to them the absolute severity of making sure you get the identity of Jesus Christ Proper. Because here's the thing there's a greater error, not only in not following uh, or not, uh, or in identifying somebody else as Christ, there's a bigger error. If you don't follow Jesus of Nazareth, then there is no salvation. And this he will flesh out in the coming chapters over and over and over again. He is the only way to the Father, He is truth itself, He is life itself. He is the bread from heaven. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. And so many other expressions of his identity that our minds start to swell with trying to understand what in the world are we dealing with? And the idea is nothing that this world has ever seen. And so John's witness is so centrally important at the beginning of this gospel that he identifies, look, it wasn't even just the voice that called out of heaven, though that would have been enough. I saw the Holy Spirit. Now stop for a second, if you will, please, and realize how significant that sentence is. Who has ever seen the Spirit of God? You can see the effects of the Spirit of God. But the last time anyone said something of that kind of significance was back when the temple itself was filled with the glory of the Lord. And that hadn't been so for hundreds and hundreds of years. Before that, they saw the representation of the Spirit of God in the fiery pillar of fire and smoke leading them wherever they were to go, filling the temple with the glory of the Lord. The tabernacle before that, guiding their way through the Red Sea as the Spirit of God blowed its way through the Red Sea and dried it up. Before that, Moses seeing the Spirit of God burning a bush that wasn't consuming it. Before that, hovering over the face of the deep And creating the world. It is a rare thing to say, I saw the Spirit of God. And people have been desiring to see it for centuries at that point. And it is a rare thing to say, I heard the word of the Lord. And yet, John hears the word of the Lord. The thing that the people of Israel were mourning after the close of the Old Testament, when Malachi stopped his writing, no more do we hear the voice of the Lord. No more do we hear it. All we have now is the daughter of the voice, which is coming to God's revelation and explaining to it just what you and I are doing right now. Today, do we hear from the Lord? The answer is no. We have heard from the Lord. But God is not giving new revelation. Doesn't matter what you dreamt last night. God is not giving new revelation. We are in a very similar time period. We do not go out and see the Spirit of the Lord descending on somebody when they become a Christian like we saw on the day of Pentecost where those little fire tornadoes are on top of everyone's heads. Do you see that? Did that happen at your conversion? It didn't happen at mine. It doesn't happen at anybody's because we are in a completely different time period. And what John is saying is, that time period where we have not seen the Spirit of the Lord, where we did not hear from the the voice on high and the divine voice calling out from the sky, that has ended. Because the Spirit of God now is interacting with people on a whole different level. He says, it wasn't that the Spirit of God just came on to Lord Jesus enabled him to do some some mighty act like we see in the Old Testament, and then left him. He says, no, what's most significant is the Spirit of God came, landed on him, and stayed. Which means his ministry and what we're about to hear of him do is directly by the hand and the power of the Spirit of God. Everything. And John will keep bringing it up through the text. Now I want you to keep it in your mind. And he will call out again when they were discussing things with some of the Greeks, that the Father himself calls out of heaven again and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's another thing on top of it. It happened twice. John is announcing in a herald of this way, preparing the way of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord himself is in our midst. And my friends, after the apostolic age closes out, we go into another time of silence where we have the word of God and we must stay faithful to this and expect that the Lord will come in his own way, in his own time, and we are servants of him here in the dark. This is why For Christians, it can be very frustrating to live in this world. It is not because we do not have enough power or enough votes or any of these things. No, it is because we know that this world is passing away. And we aim to serve the one that will remove the sin from this world. And we do serve him and we do trust in him because why? We have seen him demonstrated in our lives, his desire to see our sins separated from us. How many of you are the same person you were when you became a Christian? Habits, desires, loves have all morphed and changed. A love for Christ, a love for his word that was not natural to us. Folks, the sin of the world is being removed in salvation and in judgment all around us. In all of these things, we are to praise the Lord. Because there is something much more significant than being baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. John himself says, Look, I baptize with water, but there is one coming after me. He does a completely different baptism on a whole nother level. He will actually baptize with the Holy Spirit. If you read Matthew 3, what does he say? He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There, John the Baptist was expressing the fullest extent that he both saves and he condemns. Here, John, who is writing about the words of John the Baptist, is saying, and just focusing on the salvific side right now, and he says he is the one who is baptizing with the Holy Spirit. And why he can do that, why he can claim that, is because he himself is the Son of God everything depends on the identity of Jesus. Everything. All of salvation, all of the judgment of the world, everything. My friends, when you open up the book of Revelation and you get past the historical letters that are chapters 2 and 3, and you come to that view of heaven, what do you see? But everyone looking to and fro in heaven, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to bring the judgment of God down on the world. Here's the question that should come into your mind quite up. Not me. I can't bring the judgment of God into this world. Should I do that on my own power, I would be caught up in it and ask all the mountains to fall on my head. Exactly as it says there. Is there anyone worthy that can bring the judgment of God into this world and the salvation of God to every tongue, nation, tribe, and people. Is there anyone worthy? And what do we see? We hear the sound of a lion. And then we turn, and what do we see? A lamb slain. And carrying in its hand the scroll and the title deed of this earth, he will remove the sin of the world. It will be done by his death and resurrection, as we will learn. It will be done by the judgment of God because he alone is worthy to execute it on the face of the earth. Not you, not me. If I come to you and challenge you because of a sin in your life, best believe I'm bringing scripture because it's not my preferences. It's not me coming up to you and Rick. I don't like the color red for a shirt. And so I've made up a new rule. No wearing of red. Scripture better say this, because it is not me bringing the judgment of God. It is God who has spoken, not us. He must increase. We must decrease. That is the habit of our lives. We must trust in him, not lean on our own understanding. My friends, the gospel is as old as the world. Trust not in the wisdom of your own eyes. Trust instead in the Lord. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. This is one of the greatest identifiers of who Jesus of Nazareth is. And to see that it puts an end to John the Baptist's ministry is both a sad thing to see and a delight. He was here to prepare the way for the Lord. The way of the Lord is now prepared. And John says, That's who you're looking for, not me. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. I'm nobody. Him. And Christian, this is our job too. When people seek to put you up on a pedestal, don't humbly take it. Point them to Christ and give credit there because that's where it's due. That's who is worthy. That's who has worked in you a desire to see the word of God enacted in your life. That's who is sending his Holy Spirit and causing you to walk in a way that is pleasing to him. It's his credit. Praise him for it. This is the Lamb of God, and he will take away the sin of the world. Let's thank him for that now. Our Father, we are grateful for passages like this. They're challenging and they're deep, but they are broadly applicable. We pray, Father, that you teach us humility, To walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not to walk proudly, but to walk humbly with our God. We pray that we seek justice and we also love mercy. We pray, Father, that neither become the only rule, but that both are our pursuit. We pray, Father, for our fellowship. We pray for our desire to see the Lamb of God high and lifted up. We pray that our hatred of sin is not the only thing that fills our minds, but also the preaching of the salvation that's found in Christ. We pray that we do not only condemn, but, Father, that we do not only preach salvation. For then the question would come back to us, saved from what and saved from who? May we with one voice declare your gospel to this dying world and say, your path leads to death. But there is one who made satisfaction. Believe on him. He is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And if by believing in him, you too may have life in his name. Believe on him not, and you will have death in his name. May we constantly remind ourselves of this, that we do not become prideful or haughty in the way that we live our Christian walk, but that we become grateful, that we become thankful for those things that you have done and are doing, and that we walk humbly with you, our God. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.